Welcome to Stockholm Food Movement Podcast, part of Sweden in Transition podcast series. In a world in need of urgent reinvention, they decided to do things differently and explain why. I am Sonia Lehmann and today I meet Victoria Oloson, chairperson of PN Sweden, an international human rights NGO whose mission is to expose violations of people's right to food. Victoria will share issues faced by Swedish smallholders, but also Sami people. She will enlighten us on how Swedish pension funds can cause deforestation on the other side of the globe. Hi, Victoria. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. How did you become a chairperson for FIAN in Sweden? Maybe when you grow up, you can be interested in development, perhaps because you seek adventure, but also because you have a strong sentiment of justice that you see that the world is unfair and you want to do something about it. So I started becoming interested in international issues. At that time, it was more directed towards international development cooperation, what we call foreign aid. Aid is not necessarily what we need. We need solidarity because we sit on the same planet. We're sitting in the same boat. So if we sink, we sink together. If we float, we float together. So we need to build a sustainable ship together. So therefore, I was uh, gravitating towards solidarity organizations and worked for many years with Africa Grupperna and then with uh, Emos Björko, which is now Björko Frihet, and then... Uh, Uh, Friends of the Earth, and for almost 20 years I've been in and out of FIAN, Sweden. been more engaged uh, in the last few years, and I was elected chairperson three years ago. And what is FIAN? What does the acronym stand for? FIAN has actually dropped the acronym. It used to stand for Food First Information and Action Network. Food First was a concept that was used in human rights movements where they felt like the International Declaration of, of Human Rights is very good, but the focus is, is always on like democracy, the right freedom to meet. We should focus more on also the economical, social and cultural rights that if somebody is hungry, it's very, very easy to take take all the other human rights away from her. So we need to lift up the right to eat. Piano was actually formed by people who left Amnesty International in order to focus solely on the economical, social and cultural human rights. What are the main issues here in Sweden? The main issue regarding food sovereignty in Sweden is that there isn't any We don't have any food sovereignty at all. We don't have any preparations for like in case of crisis or war. If you compare with say Finland, Finland has six months storage to sustain the population in event of like, for instance, borders shutting down. Sweden do not have this. Authorities say that um, the storages we have is what is in the, in the shops, like in the grocery shops. And we calculate that this would last approximately two weeks. If there is a shutdown of, say, fossil fuels, electricity, or we cannot uh, import any foods or distribute any foods within the country, we would very soon have starvation in Sweden. So that's probably the main issue. And then some other issues that we mention in FIAN is that linked to this is the fact that we don't produce very much food, mostly linked to the fact that we have lost a lot of farmers uh, since we joined the European Union. Another issue which is uh, particular to Sweden uh, is that uh, we have uh, the only indigenous people in, in Europe lives in the north of Sweden, Finland, Norway and Russia. The greatest part of their country is in Sweden. Their rights are not respected today. 
So that's another issue that would be linked to food sovereignty because food sovereignty is a concept that also put a lot of attention to the fact that the people who are mostly threatened today is first and foremost the indigenous peoples of the world. The increasing struggle for acquisition of land is affecting them the most because the land is becoming a scarcity. We are looking to grab the remains of the, of the land that exists and it's mostly in the hands of the indigenous people and that's where we now need to take, it seems like the, the Western civilization or whatever you want is is grabbing the land that is now left uh, and pushing people to the, to the margins more and more. If we go back to the first issue that you mentioned on smallholders in Sweden, the fact that uh, there are less and less farmers since uh, Sweden joined the EU, what are the root causes? Globally, there is a focus on farmland to to bigger and bigger farms, more and more monocultures and uh, industrialization of food. This is happening in Sweden as well, and it has gained a lot of grounds since we joined the European Union, because the policies of the European Union, it doesn't really differ so much depending on the local situations. It's a bit of a one-size-fits-all from Italy to, to the Arctic area, and it is mostly directed towards commodifying foods and not towards actually feeding the population or towards uh, sustainable futures or sustainable agriculture or livelihoods. So, for instance, in order to get support from the European Union, you can only support one sort of activity, if you wish, on a farm at the same time. So a typical Swedish smallholders would never be able to survive doing only one thing. The smallholder would typically do cattle and milk and meat and uh, grains and forestry and perhaps other things like fishing and then the, they might the farmers might still need to to take day jobs particularly in the winter this is a model of agriculture that doesn't fit in the european union system so we lost approximately one farmer per day since we joined the european union So a lot of small farmers are really uh, moonlight farmers doing it on the side, having a, another job to get an income. But the government seems to be very much aware of the need of developing agriculture. That's a top priority. We have two areas of policies that are crashing a little bit because joining the European Union means that we're giving away some of our independence. There are good sides and bad sides and people don't really sometimes understand what the implications are. Like when we had forest fires in Sweden, people were complaining that we had to ask for firefighting planes from Italy. They don't understand that in the European Union we have split the responsibility so that one nation should not be need to do all the things themselves. And this can obviously be, there can be benefits of this system as well. So yes, we want to be prepared for crisis, we want to be prepared for whatever can happen, we want to have more like food productions in Sweden, but we also cannot really have our own policies in certain areas because we are part of the European Union. So these two perspectives can collide. And also, Sweden wants to be in the forefront of like food productions and stuff. But we're not making it easier for people to actually produce foods because the regulations are really, really strict. Like, for instance, you are allowed to, to serve food in schools that would be illegal to produce in Sweden. But it's still legal to import it. Like, this pesticide is banned in Sweden. 
but we're still eating it. We're putting it on the plates of our children because we are importing the same foods from countries where this pesticide is now still legal. We say that we want to do, we want to improve, but we don't really talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk. And if we go back to the second issue you were mentioning regarding the Sami people? Mm-hmm. I only learned quite recently that Sami people is the only indigenous people in Europe. Apparently most indigenous people are still in Asia, but in, in Europe we only have one left, and that's the Sami people, and their original land is stretching from Norway to Russia in the north. This makes around half of Sweden a colonial state. Like Sweden used to colonize their areas and pushing them away from the grounds where they lived because we wanted to take the land. We wanted to take the forests, farmland, and also there are a lot of profitable mining opportunities in this part as well. On top of that, we also put borders between all these nations now. There is a border between European Union and Norway and Russia, and uh, there is a border, like several borders, uh, crossing their landscape, which also cuts people off from each other and from the natural way of living. Real discrimination really sped up in the 19th century because of the racism ideas became, began to spread. And then Sweden denied Uh, Sami people the right to speak their language, the right to receive certain education. A lot of rights were denied. Around 100 years ago, Sweden also decided to only regard people as Sami if they owned reindeer. But a lot of Sami people actually do not keep reindeer. And this created a rift in the group that still causes some controversies today. There are several issues that affect the, the Sami people today. And one of them is that Sweden wants to open a lot of mines in the areas which would negatively affect the, the possibility of keeping reindeer and also the possibility to get access to your ancestral lands, really. Another issue is that Sweden don't really want to recognize all the rights that people have on the basis of being an indigenous people. We don't want to recognize the ILO conventions on them. Uh, because it would really need to create a shift on the use of land and use of resources in the north of Sweden that we, we are not really prepared to, to face, it seems. Yeah, it's really surprising that Sweden voted against UNDRAP. One of the analysis of why Sweden voted against the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Peasants that has been voted through in the, in the United Nations now. Sweden really stands out here. So we think it might be linked to recognizing the rights of the Sami people. However, it's voted through and Sweden now has to uh, respect it like everybody else. So that would be very interesting to see how we will remind them of this. There are a lot of projects in the north of Sweden related to the development of batteries. Do you know if there are specific cases regarding territories that would belong to the Sami? That... There are several in the north of Sweden, Rönnbäck and Kalla, partly because obviously we chase, uh, we need more batteries and we're developing electric cars and so forth. So we, we believe that we need a lot of minerals which are now to be found in more and more and more sensitive nature areas that we previously didn't exploit. They talk about sustainable mining, but Sustainable mining, in my opinion, would mean that we mine a lot less than we do today because we really, really need, we need to own less stuff, not more stuff. 
And instead of just replacing each and every car with with an electric car, that is not going to solve the problem. We really need to transport ourselves and our stuff a lot less than we do today. What are the priorities, do you think, to help them? There are much, much more representatives of the Sami, of the different Sami groups who are visible today. If you see like arts, culture, news, uh, everywhere, that some people are, that perhaps you didn't know they are Sami, they start to like use their symbols and their clothes and so on so that you would recognize. They refer to the issues, they, they bring up the struggles, they bring up the political struggles and the rights and, and so forth. So they are much more visible. Like I grew up in the 80s. The little we learned in school about the situation was probably wrong. There was a lot of misconceptions, actually derogatory ideas being spread around, like jokes about these people. But it's a clear footprint on how Sweden as a colonial state is like reproducing a lot of racism. People are now bringing the issue up quite powerfully. We have movies now about the way that people were were marginalized, discriminated, and, and how the self-hate was produced. Uh, I can recommend a very powerful movie called Sami Blood that has been internationally acclaimed. You can really get a picture on how this affects uh, people both on a, on a national level and on, a, on an individual level. So uh, I think there's a lot of hope for the future where, where people rise up and refuse to uh, be treated like this any longer. So I think as a nation, we need to understand what we have done, just like we expect others, other nations to understand what they have done. We must also do so ourselves and do our homework. What are the concrete actions that you can take mm. or that you take as an organization? PN is originally modeled on the, on the work of Amnesty that people who have the right to food and nutrition infringed can complain to FIAN and get assistance. So we never do anything unless there is a group who is prepared to work to run the struggle themselves and we can support an existing struggle. We can't do anything if there isn't a struggle because we can't come to a place like from the outside and create a struggle that would never work. So now, for instance, working on two cases, one in India, in Andhra Pradesh, supporting the struggle of, of another indigenous people called the Yanadi who have been discriminated and marginalized since the British rule. People are trained and informed on their human rights and the rights that they have as Indian citizens. And another project is in, in Ecuador, where it's also indigenous people. There is uh, people in um, Kimsakotcha, where there's a mining prospect that they are struggling against because it would contaminate their waters and also take away the possibility of livelihood. But we're also involved in a lot of other work. There has been fact-finding missions uh, to and from Brazil. Normally, a fact-finding takes place when we go somewhere and see what's going on, like we go to Latin America to see how we are destroying the rainforests. But now we are inviting the people from the rainforest to come to Europe and find facts about how our businesses and uh, pension funds are actually investing in destroying the forests instead so that it will go both ways because we actually know a lot about what happens when we chop down the rainforest, but we don't know all that much about how exactly the economical networks and investment links and so forth is done in Sweden. 
you discovered that actually pension funds in Sweden were financing the deforestation in, in Brazil, right? Yes, absolutely. Swedish pension funds are used to invest in companies that are... <laughs> deforesting they're taking away forests they are uh, taking away the rights from people and sometimes even the lives of people one example is that the ap fund now is investing in chevron chevron has lost a case that has been going on for 20 years against the state of ecuador and they have been found guilty of destroying forests it's where more than one people lived and they are now gone so that would be both ecocide and genocide in fact people from that case and from that area came to sweden to explain this and the ethical council of the ap funds refused to meet them because they claimed that chevron won the case because chevron has now gone to a little local court in, in the U.S. who deemed that they were right and that uh, Ecuador, the state of Ecuador and everybody who's been against them for 20 years is wrong. So my pension funds are still being invested in Chevron because I can choose where to put some of my pension money, but I cannot choose all of it. Some of it is bound by the state. Do you make some lobbying with politicians? There is a campaign called Justa Pensioner, Fair Pensions, where you can log into a website and you can find information on where the funds are invested to the degree that we can actually figure it out because it's sometimes quite complicated um, networks of, of investments, sub-companies and sub-ownership and so forth. It lacks transparency. Corporations should be responsible for the damages that they do abroad. And today they're not. They're getting away from it. You must take a company to court in the same country where the, the, the case is taking place. And some of these countries are really, really weak. And I mean, the fact that Ecuador took Chevron to court is amazing. But the fact that they're not trying to wriggle out of it is not making a nice precedent for, for, diff for other nations to do the same. We are trying to expose cases in the media, obviously, whenever we get a chance. And they they have gotten quite a lot of exposure, particularly now that Brazil is in the current affairs a lot with uh, the president and his policies and uh, the burning forests. Mm. The forest burning is a very powerful image that you can actually use to put the focus on a lot of other connected issues. The problem is obviously that <laughs> wherever we go, we find that profit is always the number one priority. For the pension funds, it's like top, it must be profitable. All other regards are becoming second. But there are a few things that they cannot invest in, like weapons, perhaps. But, but apart from that, it's like it must be profitable. Multinationals are more powerful than countries, states. The only way out would be to have a new crime in the international law. Vian has been invited to events around ecocide. So yes, I mean, we are supporting the idea that ecocide should be a crime, just like genocide. Genocide means killing a people. After the Second World War, we, we needed a concept of how if you murder one or two or five people, you're a murderer. But if you, if you murder people, what are you? It felt like sort of crime was missing. So the, the word genocide had to be invented. And now we are seeing the same 
thing going on. We have environmental crimes. We have crimes where people pollute a river or a lake or a, taken down a forest that they weren't supposed to take down. And that's really hard to do anything about it afterwards. You, you found that the level of environmental degradation and destruction that we're seeing today demands a new level of crime. We're not just polluting a river any longer. We are deleting entire ecosystems. The problem also is that multinational, with the environmental law that exists today, the worst they can face is a big amount of money mm. they have to pay. But now what they do is that they plan for that. People are taking these decisions. The people themselves should be put in jail for this as human beings, not just like having their company punished, but the, the actual entire boards should be jailed for it. And that's another principle of the ecocide idea that we um, want to see. What are the challenges ahead? What should we wish Fian going forward? There are a lot of stuff that we'd really like to do more of if we were more people who are good with food systems, agroecology or, or human rights lawyers and so on. Some people think that the idea of food sovereignty is to be against trade or to be nationalist. This is not true because we're not against trade, but we really believe that our food systems can only be sustainable if we if we base our foods on what's available where we live. And in Sweden, it would be eating a lot more pulses and beans and and also like not only potatoes but like beetroots and roots and these kind of things and, and the fruits that we can keep over winter. That should be the base of what we eat. And then you can import some stuff and put on top like stuff that you can survive without in case of a crisis. But that shouldn't be the basis of what you eat. Mm. It should be like an extra... <laughs> Maybe livestock can be a, also a, mm. an opportunity to use the land. and That's one of the main points where I think the, the, the discussion on, on food has gone wrong in Sweden and perhaps, I mean, probably globally, where people are, are really seeing meat as the main culprit of the, of the climate crisis. But that is based on the idea that that you always feed animals stuff that humans could have eaten instead. And that's not a sustainable and traditional way of keeping livestock. I mean, we know that it's wrong to feed cows grain. It's when we use animals as industrial products to produce only beef or only milk. That is when the system goes wrong. One of the principles of agroecology is that an animal can never be used only for its meat. An animal has a role that includes eating stuff that humans cannot eat, such as grass, uh, having meadows, eating in, in the forests, eating byproducts of stuff that we produce as plant-based foods, and also producing leather. An animal should be something that we respect, not an industrial product. And therefore, if, if we come back to use to, to having animals that we respect, then meat would be very expensive, as it should. Mm -hmm. And we would also eat the entire animal. We wouldn't just eat the filet and give the rest to the dogs like we do today. And in Sweden, we like throwing away almost all the sheep's wool, which is also crazy, because people find it unprofitable to wash. That's also perverted. Do you feel 
optimistic or pessimistic? And what makes you feel this way? We have to be optimistic because it's the only way we can create a future. If we're pessimistic, then uh, it's just uh, game over. But we can't afford game over. We have to continue struggling, but we must do an informed struggle. We can't just buy the first theory that comes across in the media. We have to like, we have to know our homework and to know how the ecosystems work. I saw a comment on uh, on the social media the other day that we should just grow up and face the fact that we have lost the struggle. And that's so dumb because it's like, say that you live in a village with a hundred people and the, the, the plague comes. And then somebody says, we must stop the plague from coming in. And then you fail. The plague comes in anyway. And 20 people die. Should you just like, okay, the plague came. We lost the, the, the struggle. Uh, we must now just have a big party while waiting for the others to die. No, you don't. You actually try to save people. Still, you try to, to, to cure the, the people or, or to, to, uh, to remove them to, to sit in a different house. You, you separate the sick from the healthy. You do all kinds of things. Up until the last person alive, you would still struggle against the plague. And even if the entire village dies, then maybe. You have lost the struggle, but until that happens, you haven't lost because there's actually something left to save because the climate crisis is not a win or lose situation. It's like, yeah, we might have lost, but how much did we lose? If we stopped the, the, the emissions today, we would still be in shit, but not as deep as the shit we're going to be in if we just do nothing and continue traveling and continue doing whatever. Because we think that ah, it's it's lost anyway. What inspires you? I like to see engaged people around me. When you can spread the idea and see other people being fired up and and want to bring it forward. Do you have a quote or a book you want to share with us? I like a book by Michael Pollan called The Omnivore's Dilemma about being a human being able to eat everything from like algae to uh, a cow. And how to, how to make this work in the limited planet that we have. I think it's a brilliant book that is, is asking a lot of questions and he's claiming a lot of stuff and you might not necessarily agree with him, but it does put a lot of ideas into your head. Thank you for Thank everything you. you gave us. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank Victoria. you. Victoria. Thanks a lot for listening. If you like this episode, I invite you to rank it on your favorite app, to share it around you, to make a comment, so this podcast can gain more visibility. Hello! Hey